All right. So uh, just to just to recap, and I don't know if I really got into this uh, about Dr. Ivan Pavlov, who was a Russian uh, physiologist, actually. In fact, uh, I always find it interesting, and I don't know if I mentioned this last Thursday, that it's interesting that we remember Ivan Pavlov for classical conditioning in the realm of psychology, but what we really have to thank him for is things like antacid, uh, things like uh, proper eating schedules, uh, things like that, because what he was really interested in was the digestive system of the human being. And in, in his right, he was the first to come up with the idea of an antacid that calms stomach and, and make digestion easier. But what he's probably most well known for is classical conditioning and that other part, even though we, mo many Americans take antacids every day, uh, he's not given that, uh, that credit. But uh, one of the things that Pavlov was doing uh, looking at the uh, digestive system as he was looking at salivation in response to food. And he was curious about salivation based on the intensity of the stimulus that was be pr presented to the dog. So they would have very pungent dog food or dog food that had very little smell. Maybe they covered it with a with a uh, gloss or something. So it looked like the food, but the dog couldn't smell. And they had a range of smells and they wanted to know the dog's salivation response. And so what they did is they surgically uh, put two tubes in, 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 the saliv in some of the salivation uh, glands in the dog, which uh, when the dog salivated, it would fill the tubes and they could measure the amount of salivation based on the presentation of the intensity and the amount of food. So that was his original experiment. But what he found is, is based on observation, is that the dog started to salivate quite a bit before the food was ever in front of them, before they could sense the food, before they could smell it, before they could understand it, the dogs would start to salivate, okay? So in this model right here that we have, in this, this, this diagram that we have, we have this situation. So we have an unconditioned stimulus, which is food, which produces an unconditioned response, which is salivation, which salivation prepares the species to digest that food, okay? And what Pavlov noticed is that the dogs would start to salivate the moment they heard the caregiver's footsteps. So once they heard the footsteps, the dogs would start to salivate. Now, footsteps don't naturally produce salivation. So this was kind of confusing to Pavlov. So he set up this condition. Uh, um, irrelevant of what he actually started to experiment on to see what this is. Why is a dog salivating without the smell or presence of food? So he decided to set up an experiment where he had a neutral stimuli, which was at the time of Bell, which does not naturally produce salivation. Okay, so we have a neutral stimuli which does not produce that type of behavior. And then what he did is he paired the bell with the food, kind of like the footsteps with the food. And he paired it over and over and over, and he found that with the food and the bell combined, that the dog started to salivate. But then he went to the next step. And he presented the bell by itself. And he found that when the bell was presented by itself, it would create salivation in the dog. So this, this neutral stimul stimulus then became what Pavlov called a conditioned stimulus, which then produced a conditioned 
response, okay? Now, I don't know about YouTube, this kind of makes sense to me because I know every time I walk into the kitchen, I start to salivate. And that's a natural response. When I go to the fridge, I open it up and I don't think about reading a book. I think about eating. That's a conditioned response because a fridge in and of itself shouldn't produce salivation or hunger pains. Okay. And so this is the idea behind classical conditioning is that we can have all this neutral stimuli that shouldn't produce a response, but if it's paired enough with something that naturally produces that response, it can produce it in and of itself. So that's kind of the basic summary of classical conditioning. Now, uh, there, there are some general rules to classical conditioning, such as generalization, such as uh, condition response may appear after various uh, neutral stimuli that are similar to a condition response. So in this condition, uh, I'm going to go back to my kitchen example. Okay, so I get hunger pains when I walk into my kitchen. But I also will get hunger pains when I walk into something that is similar to a kitchen. Or here's a better example. Um, if you study in your bedroom and you pair uh, and you snack while you study, don't be surprised if you get hunger pains when you study or you're in your bedroom, because both of those have become a conditioned stimuli if you do it over repetitive amount of times. And so I know I'm a victim to this as a student going through college and everything. I know that when I I'm studying, I'm preparing for a lecture, I'm preparing for a research project, uh, because I always studied when I was going through school, I always had a snack by me or something or I used to go to a, a cafe or a, or a local coffee shop and do my work. I know now that every time I sit down to do some type of study or studying, that I will have a bag of chips or a soda or a coffee by me. That's, a, that's kind of an example of how classical conditioning works. Yes, and, and Rachel, you, you provide a great example. I can't, I can't study in my room either because I'll fall asleep and that, because that's the association with the bedroom. I either get, hun I get hungry and tired. <laughs> so that's a good example of, of classical conditioning, okay? Now, how do you break that though? And, and this is a good example of how do you break this generalization rule? Well, when it comes to studying, and this is important for, for, for future tense, is the recommendation is that you study in different places. So one day you study in your living room, one day you study in your, on your desk, one day maybe you study in your bedroom, another day you go study at the local coffee shop or whatever it may be, and that will break that condition stimulus, okay? Discrimination in classical conditioning is when the condition response appears after the condition stimulus, but not after, the, but not after other condition stimulus. So this is when we get into some nuances in, in, in condition, classical conditioning, is let me provide an example. Let's say um, you study at the coffee shop and you get a coffee and then you study at home and you buy it and, and you chew on some potato chips. So we have the same behavior in two different stimulus contexts. So when you're at home and studying, you're gonna crave something to chew on, but when you're away from home, you're going to crave something to drink. And this is what's called discrimination learning. 
Okay, and that's what that is meant by. Now there are some things. If, if, uh, for example, you you stop studying at the coffee shop and you go to the coffee shop, coffee shop, coffee shop, eventually the need to study will cease. Okay, and that's what we call extinction. However, there is something that's called, that's called spontaneous recovery. And I think it's best explained in the context of relationships. In my early years as a psychologist, I did a lot of research on, on relationships and intimacy. And this is something that meets the condi classical conditioning ex uh, acquisition, extinction, rest, spontaneous recovery very well. So you get in a relationship, this is going to be the acquisition phase. And you pair your new partner with everything that is good. They're loving, they're caring, uh, whatever it may be that, you, that, that you're seeking, okay? Uh, and so you associate those qualities with that individual. So we learn those, we, that, that's what's being classically conditioned. But let's say then there's a violation in the relationship. So you break up with the individual. And over time, those classically conditioned learned responses will go down, okay, eventually, okay? Those things you've associated with that love mate or that intimate partner will eventually dissipate. And then eventually you'll get to where they're no longer, you know, that person. Yes, you may have fond memories, photos, blah, blah, blah. But let's, let, let, let's leave that at, for a more complex example. So, so you've extinguished your response to that individual and the, the associations with that individual. And you have a good rest. And let's say, you know, three months. Let's go with three months. Let's say it's been three months since you've seen this person. Now, I know we all come from small communities, so this is probably more like three days or one week um, because of, it's hard to avoid people in small communities, but let's go with three months for the sake of argument. And then you're at the grocery store one day and you run into this individual what most likely is going to happen is you're going to have this thing called spontaneous recovery where you start to question, geez, why did I break up with that person? Why did I ever consider leaving that person? I remember, and we try to humanize it, we remember all of these good memories we had, all these association. Remember, classical conditioning is about association. We remember all of those association. And so all of those feelings we had for that person, not all of them, a portion of them spontaneously recover. And we get the urge to interact with that individual, to see that individual, to maybe look them up on Facebook or Instagram and see how they're doing, okay? This is the concept of spontaneous recovery. When we've had distance from something that has been conditioned into us, and then when we see that individual again, we have a partial, if not full, spontaneous recovery to that stimulus where we all of a sudden start wondering why you left them and you start, and sometimes we start getting feelings of, uh, that we had when we were in a relationship with them. That is kind of the classical conditioning pattern. Now, over time, over repetition of time, if we don't interact with that person, the spontaneous recovery will get less and less and less until it's extinguished. Uh, but it does take exposure for that extinguishing to take place. So continually to actually see that individual will actually extinguish those faults, those feelings we had when we were originally with the person clear back here in the acquisition phase, okay? So that's my, my best explanation of, of how conditioning works and how it can return after a rest period and go through extinction through 
and into spontaneous recovery, okay? Some of the explanations for classical conditioning, what are some of the applications? While well, we know that um, phobias have been associated with classical conditioning and we can go back to the experiments of Watson and Rainier with the little Albert experience, experiments. And to kind of, uh, I, I, I don't know if I brought this up before in this class, but what is the Watson and Rainier and what is the little Albert experiments? So Watson is the father of behaviorism. He is the person who said, what we should be doing as psychologists is only observing those things we can observe, which is stimulus and environment and the response of the organism. And anything that is in between those two things does not matter because they're not observable. And so for about 50, 60 years who, here in the United States, all we did was observe stimuluses in the environment and responses in the organism, mainly dealing with animals, uh, mainly pigeons and rats and mice. Um, originally, before Watson, uh, they did do some experiments with cats with uh, Thorndike, but that's a that's another interesting story for another time, okay? But what did Watson and Rainier find in the 1920 experiment? Well, let me, let me bring this up. Um, let me, I'm going to bring, I wanna watch. We're gonna watch this short little clip about what um, Watson did in his original experiments, okay? As owner of Mid-Mobile, I wanted rid of to introduce first. our new family plan with a beloved member of my family, my sister. All right. So let's watch this little video about what, um, what Watson and Rainier did. In the early part of the 20th century, psychologists John Watson and Rosalie Rayner set out to teach a baby boy called Little Albert to fear white rats using the principle of classical conditioning. This is a film of their work. The film shows several phases of their study. First, as you see here, the investigators demonstrated that prior to conditioning, Little Albert had no fears of any animals, including, of course, white rats. Um, I think we lost audio or video, not audio. We lost the audio, not video. <laughs> Hello. Can't help you, Rachel. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought it was just me. <laughs> In the early part of the 20th century, psychologists John Watson and Rosalie Rayner set out to teach a baby boy called Little Albert to fear white rats using the principle of classical conditioning. This is a film of their work. The film shows several phases of their study. First, as you see here, the investigators demonstrated that prior to conditioning, Little Albert had no fears of any animals, including, of course, white rats.
Um, Dr. Peterson, is there not supposed to be audio on there? Yeah, that's correct. This is just the original film. So there's no oh, okay. audio in this part. It's just showing how little Albert, he didn't have any fear of animals before. And you can see the white rat. He's having no fear response to the white rat. But then watch what, watch what happens when a set loud noise is presented with the, uh, the, the, the animal. So we'll see that here in just a second. Okay, thank you. Uh -huh. Watson and Rayner then sought to teach Albert to fear white rats through classical conditioning. In the conditioning phase of the study, which was not filmed, the investigators struck a steel bar with a hammer whenever Albert reached for a rat, making a very loud noise that greatly upset and frightened Albert. After six such pairings of the loud noise and the rat, it was believed that the boy had been conditioned to fear white rats. That is, Albert was now expected to react fearfully to white rats whether the rats were paired with loud noises or not. In this next film sequence, we see Albert interacting with a white rat after the conditioning process. The investigators believed that the child's reaction during this trial demonstrated his newly acquired fear of white rats. Finally, the investigators expected that little Albert's conditioned fear of white rats would generalize to stimuli that were similar in key ways to a white rat. In this film segment, they were trying to demonstrate that the child now also reacted fearfully to similar objects, such as a rabbit, a dog, a furry object, and a white mask worn by Watson himself. Okay, sorry, I had to stop the commercial. Um, so, yeah, Rachel, I agree. This, so just so both of you know, uh, this, this type of experiment would never uh, um, pass an institutional review board for ethics today. And so thank goodness there hasn't been more experiments like that done on infants because one of the uh, I'll just give you some nuances of the little Albert experiment is one, they never did any counter conditioning. And when Watson was called on that, um, little Albert was never found. He's never actually been found. There is a grave site where a little boy did pass away that did belong to his mother at the time that they think that might be little Albert's grave. But little Albert never received any counter conditioning or any, uh, you know, what we would consider today as psychological assistance for that kind of mean uh, experiment that they did. So that is what did start a lot of the ethical um, uh, issues within psychology about psychologists being ethical in their research. So uh, unfortunately, we don't know what actually happened to little Albert um, and, and what happened. But what it did do, and I hate to say this kind of on the positive side, is it did start to develop a lot of treatments for people who have phobias. Because what we found is, is that using counter conditioning systems such as uh, 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 um, presenting uh, feared stimuli to the individual at slow progressions is the best way to rid someone of a phobia. Now, then, uh, so yes, it, it is an example of, of, of unethical research, but it also is an example of what happens when we classically condition. And so 
Uh, most uh, individuals, if, if you really look at history of people who have, for example, phobias of spiders or something like that, we find that their parents usually had a phobia and a fear response to those spiders as well. And so when they saw the spider, they panicked and the child observed that and, and learned that behavior. Um, and so, yeah, and, and, and so that's kind of how we, we realized that um, phobias are really classically conditioned situations. They're not something that we're actually born with. With the exception, I'm going to bring this up. The one phobia that uh, many people suffer from uh, is darkness. Um, and, and, but that has an adaptive thing. But a lot of the other phobias that we have, probably with fish, like Rachel is mentioning, probably has something to do with a conditioned response that we learned um, using this process. Now, I should mention that... Uh, just as an extension to the little Albert and the end story to, to uh, uh, Dr. Watson's history is I, I, I kept mentioning his research assistant who was Rainier. Um, they ended up actually having a, an affair while they were doing this experiment. Uh, Watson was uh, married at the time. Columbia University said either cut off the relationship or you'll be fired. Uh, what Watson decided to do was to leave Columbia University. He divorced his wife, married Rainier, and they lived a life uh, together for, for decades together. And even after she passed, it was said that Watson spent the last 10 to 15 years of his life in a deep depression in his home, which while I feel for his ex-wife and the situation that happened, it is a, a note to endearing care for, for at least that love can last till, till the dying day. But that's, that's, that's probably a story I should have told back in the social psychology section rather than this one. But what did uh, Watson do after he left Columbia University is that he went into marketing because he understood this conditioning idea. And one of the first projects that he was, he was hired for was for a coffee company. Um, and I won't divulge which coffee company, but uh, they wanted to know, that, you know, there was starting to be a lot of competition for coffee. And this company that hired him wanted to say, hey, do we need to increase the quality of our product? And Watson said two things. He said, no, what you need to do is redo your packaging and variety, okay? Those two things made him a very, very wealthy man because what he showed is, is that at the time, coffee was sold in this very plain container that basically said coffee and the name on it. And what he said is he said, let's, make the cover of our coffee container amazing, like very beautiful with flowers and with integration and all of this different stuff. You don't need to increase your quality. All you need to do is increase its appearance in quality. And what that did is ended up doubling and tripling the sales of that company. We can see the similar analogy between brand products and off-brand products. If you read, for example, the back of a macaroni box, uh, the, the, the Kraft macaroni box, you will see comes from the exact same manufacturing plant as the generic macaroni and cheese but people will swear that the craft tastes better than the generic. That's classical conditioning because we assume that because of the packaging and the brand, it will taste better and be better. We create it to taste better and be better. Even though in the example of macaroni and cheese, they have the same exact ingredients. It's just for some reason in the generic box, we adjust our taste to that generic product, okay? And so, and, and, and again, going back to this example, taste studies have shown, you know, if you put a label in front of a generic that says it's craft, 
versus a generic and you put craft, people will choose the generic that is labeled craft, even though it came from the generic box. Okay, that's one thing he did. And if you see today, everything comes in flashy packaging. Um, that's came from Watson. The other thing he said is that everybody has different tastes. So you have to have a variety of products. So in the coffee industry, you have Colombian, you have uh, uh, mild roast, medium roast, dark roast, you have specialized. They may be all manufactured by the same company, but because they provide selection that increase the cells. In fact, in many of them, even in the medium to low roast and all those, they're actually roasted the same. It's just the packaging labeling that provides the, the information the person assumes will take place. So he went on based on classical and operant conditioning that he learned as a psychologist and went on to became very, uh, very rich going into marketing only by manipulating the package, not the actual product. So that's an example of, of, of the kind of, I'm, I'm actually trying to get a low view of Watson. He did this to that poor baby and then he's manipulating us through packaging, but uh, for decades since then, so have many, many, many more marketers. So I guess I can't totally uh, blame him. So that's the little Albert experiment and that's how we get to phobias um, and the phobic situation. And we have learned from this that there are, uh, lots of good treatments for phobias based on this, okay? Uh, let me go back. Okay. Counter conditioning is associating condition stimulus with new incompatible condition response. Um, this is also called aversive conditioning. So I have a personal example of this. Uh, Back, back way when, this was decades ago, um, uh, I went to a doctor who started me on a new medication. And based on that medication, I had a complete adverse response to it. But at the time I had the adverse response to that medication, I was, re I was eating fettuccine Alfredo at a restaurant. And what I associated with my adverse response to that medication was the fettuccine. And even today, because of that adverse response I have, I could look at a dish of fettuccine Alfredo and almost choke. It disgusts me. This is what we call adverse conditioning, aversive conditioning uh, uh, when we're talking about classical conditioning, when a condition stimulus is incompatible with the condition response. So in this case, fettuccine Alfredo shouldn't produce aversion. It shouldn't produce sickness. But because it was paired with an unconditioned stimuli, it ended up being an adverse stimulus to me. That, that's just an example of counter conditioning where it's where, where stimulus tend where a stimulus that should produce some unconditioned stimulus then produces something that's incompatible with this. So in my case, food should have produced uh, salivation, hunger with this certain food. Instead, what that food does is it produces an aversion to eating. And that's what we call counter conditioning. Okay, so what are some other applications of classical conditioning, placebo effect, um, advertising, which we just mentioned with Watson, drug habituation, and, and we can even see classical conditioning in immune and ingredient system. When we take a, um, a, a, a vaccine, what we are doing is classically conditioning our immune system to respond to a virus. And a lot of people don't understand this in this association that basically uh, vaccines are a classically conditioning procedure to strengthen the immune system 
against a natural aversive response to a natural virus. Uh, the placebo effect is when we've associated the idea that a medication or something should produce some effect. And so we assume that that effect will be produced and it does. And this is the main thing that when we do clinical trials with new medications and stuff, this is why in clinical trials, we always have the real medication and we have the fake medication. And that, those are the two we're gonna compare together. Usually the fake medication is a sugar pill of some type, but we don't let the participant know that. And the real medication is the actual real medication. And what we're looking for in clinical trials is for the real medication to have a larger effect than the sugar pill. And if the real medication has a bigger effect than the placebo, that is when we call that medication effective, that it's actually doing something beyond what the individual actually wants it to do. And the individual is producing that response on its own. And that's what we do when we do clinical trial, trials for new medications or, new, or any type of new treatment. Um, that we would that we would look at whether it's psychological, medical, or anything. And I'll and I'll tell you these these clinical trials, uh, cancer medications, diabetic medications, very serious medications have to get over the placebo effect before they're they they are seen as viable medications, because what we have found is that most of the time. If a person believes they're taking the right type of stuff to heal them, well, guess what? They are healed. Um, and that's just that that's what we call the placebo effect. Okay. Okay. So that's classical conditioning and all the nuances with classical conditioning. Now we need to get into operant conditioning. And with operant conditioning, what we are requiring is a voluntary response from the organism. In classical conditioning, it requires us not to have any type of response to learn. It's the association that we are, we are, we are observing and we're expecting. In operant, we have to operate in order for that learning to occur. So the consequences of behavior change the probability of behavior's occurrence, okay? So where does this all come from? It actually started with Thorndike's law of effect that a stimulus triggers a response. And that's basically Thorndike's law, that when you come across any type of stimulus, it is going to produce a certain response in the organism. Sometimes we don't recognize the response because the stimulus is so weak or it's so nuanced or we're so used to it, we don't even recognize it, but we still respond to it, okay? And that's the interesting thing is a lot of people who say they don't recognize things in their environment, we still can change their behavior by just implementing small responses small stimuluses in that environment. I think my favorite example of this is, is uh, 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 honesty behavior and helping behavior and whatnot. So I'm gonna give two examples of Thorndike's law. One was done in research that was done in, uh, uh, a, in a couple companies break rooms where the company asked if you, you, know, you, know, you, you drink coffee, please put some money into the jar to support the expenses of buying the coffee grounds, the water and the like, the sugar, the, the, the creamer and the like. And we had two different types of stimuli. One, there was a picture of just mountains above the, the, the giving jar, the, the donation jar. In the other condition, there was just a picture of a simple smiley face. The smiley face basically looked like this. It really didn't have any eyes. 
it really didn't have any human features. It just had two lines that represent the eyes and a curved line that represents a smile, okay? Now we compare those conditions by the amount of money that is donated to the pot. And what we found is that in the mountain scene, people donated pretty much not at all. Uh, if we were to put at this, most people donated at a rate of about $1. Let's, let, let's give it an amount, $1, okay? Now, what did people do when they felt someone was observing them, even though this is a abstract figure? Well, if we take this $1 and quantify it in the experiment, the donations went up to $5. And when we asked people why they donated four to five times more now than they did previously, they didn't have an answer. They didn't know why they would donate much more now with just this simple stimuli in front of them, okay? But what we found is that this simple stimuli produced more donations. Now let's take this to children and let's take this to Halloween. And we're gonna have actually three conditions in this situation. We're gonna have an experimenter answer the door and once the experimenter answers the door and the children say trick or treat, uh, the children, the, the, the adult is going to go say, hey, I've got to take this important call. There's the candy over there. Please only take one so that there's enough for everyone else. So there was a specific direction to the child that, hey, I have to leave the room. There's the candy. Only take one candy. And, and basically be on your way, have a good Halloween. Okay, in this condition, we had, again, a couple stimuli. One, we had, again, a picture of mountains or some scenic thing. I think there were flowers or something like that. So this was stimuli one. Stimuli two, there was a mirror. Stimuli three, there was our famous smiley face. All right, and we were wondering if these stimuli would change the child's behavior. And indeed it did. In condition one, I, I, I'm just going to summarize this. There was a lot of variation in stimulus. One, kids would take a full handful of candy, but in stimulus two and three, for the most part, most children complied with the person's instructions and only took one. So here we have these nuanced stimuli that produced an unconscious and involuntary, re involuntary response, okay? So we have the commission of behavior and we have response. So that's Thorndike's law of effect. B.F. Skinner expanded on Thorndike, Thorndike's work by saying, can we shape these behaviors? Can we reward individuals through the stimulus and response connection to either increase the response of behavior or decrease the response of behavior? And this is where we get to this interesting individual, B.F. Skinner which he, he mainly worked with pigeons uh, who, 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 who uh, poked at a certain button that would produce food. And he got some amazing responses from that. In fact, I will give you a preview of what B.F. Skinner came from. He was the first one who produced our first um, guided bomb systems. But he didn't use computer chips. He didn't use GPS. What he used were maps and pigeons. And what he taught his pigeons to do is if there were a target that a pigeon needed to hit, the pigeon would only be rewarded by hitting that specific target. 
And so when the airplane was flying over, the bomb was dropping, the only way the pigeon could get rewarded if, is if it poked at this specific position, which would tell the navigation system of the bomb where to go to explode in the proper place. Now, this was never actually put into actual warfare. There were some human, there were some animal rights people that came out and said, no, that's not ethical. Not only are you gonna blow up a bunch of people, but you're gonna blow up this poor bird. So it was never put into actual military service, but it is our first uh, precision bomb guided system was with BF Skinner. And that's where we're going with operant conditioning. Okay, so what, what is the terminology for uh, operant conditioning is we have two types of reinforcement. Reinforcement means that we're going to increase the probability of a behavior occurring. Punishment in, in, in operant conditioning terms is that we're going to decrease the frequency of a behavior. Now, don't that this becomes difficult because we're going to use the word positive and negative, and we're going to use the terms reinforcement and punishment. What I need you to do for this section is take out the emotional uh, nuances of reinforcement and punishment, punishment as being negative, reinforcement as being positive. The other thing that I need you to do is take out the emotional nuances of positive versus negative. Uh, because we have a positive reinforcement and we have a negative reinforcement. We have a positive punishment and we have a negative punishment, okay? So what is positive punishment? Positive reinforcement, excuse me. Positive reinforcement is when a behavior is followed by a reward. So this is when we give a child a gold star for getting an A on their paper or rewarding a child for doing their their, their yard work, whatever it may be. Negative reinforcement is when we remove an unpleasant stimuli that then produces reward. So let me give you an example of child tantrum behavior because I think this interplay between a child's tantrum behavior and adult really emphasizes the difference and the ideas between positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Okay, so let's imagine a child in a grocery store, okay? And the child goes, I want a candy bar. Mom says, no, and I'll use moms. It could be dads, caregivers, whoever's, but I like the word mom. Uh, mom says, no, child says, but I want it. Mom says, no, child says, I want it. Mom says, no child starts to act out, starts to scream, starts to throw things off shelf, starts to do all those things. So what does mom do? She says she gives in, right? She gives the child a candy bar. What is happening in that situation is the child is being positively reinforced for their tantrum behavior. No, no, negatively, no, positively reinforced. So they got rewarded for throwing a tantrum. But at the same time, mom is being negatively reinforced for the removal of that unpleasant stimulus, okay? So both the child and the parent are being rewarded for a child throwing a tantrum, okay? Now, I want you to remember this type of learning uh, and, and, and classical conditioning mainly happens on the unconscious level that parents don't really realize that they're actually in, encouraging tantrum behavior because what we have found, and this is, this is an interesting experiment. So we, we've taken uh, mothers, caregivers with children who throw tantrums in grocery stores and the like, and we say, okay, we don't want you to give in to the child's behavior, all right? But what do we find, all right, in this situation? So we record mom or caregiver's tracks through the grocery store. 
And what we find is, is that when the child is not throwing a tantrum for the candy bar, mom passes by the candy bar aisle five times more than she normally does when the child is not present. Why? Because the mom has been reinforced, has been rewarded in the past on an unconscious level for, re- for providing and stopping that negative stimuli of the child. And so we find that with tantrum behavior, it's not all about the child, but it's about the interaction between the child and that caregiver. And indeed, what we find is that, and and I've heard this from parents, I know I experienced this as a parent, I send my child to the grandparent, and the child is a perfect angel. But when the child is with me, the child is a demon child. They, 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 they're, they're not this perfect child that the grandparent talked about. The reason being is that you've, taught, you've taken one of the individuals who have had reinforced behaviors for the child's negative behaviors out of the situation, and you put the child into a new stimulus environment where that behavior has not been learned on an unconscious or a subconscious level. And so that's kind of the, the interaction between positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, okay? So this graph is really good about p- pointing out the difference between positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. You turn your homework in time, your teacher praises you for your performance, you'll most likely turn that uh, homework in on time and again. Again, you wax your skis, your skis go faster, so you'll you'll wax. I don't think this is a good example for Arizona, but you know, for, for Northern people or ski people, it's a good example. You randomly press a button on the dashboard of your friend's car, great music begins to play, so from there on, you deliberately hit that same button. Those are all forms of positive reinforcement. Examples of negative reinforcements are you turn your homework on time, teachers stop criticizing you for late homework. So that negative stimuli stops. So what do you do? You increase turning in your homework on time. You watch your skis, people stop zooming by you on the slope, you watch your skis again because you've taken out that negative stimuli. You randomly press a button on your dashboard friends, an annoying song shuts off. So guess what? You took care of that negative stimuli. You'll press that button again. Those are both examples of positive and negative reinforcement, okay? So now that we've covered that, uh, I wanna go over. Let's talk about punishment because I want to get to this point because I think it's important. Positive punishment is behavior followed by an aversive consequence decreases the probability of that behavior occurring in the future. Negative punishment is when you take away a positive stimulus that then should decrease the probability that that individual will do that again. So where has uh, punishment gone wrong? (laughs) And and this this is a good example, is that for positive punishment to work, the aversive consequence has to be natural, meaning that they have to have some type of natural consequences. Things like spanking, yelling at a child, putting a child in timeout are not natural aversions for a child. So what happens is, is yes, those things work in the short term, but they don't have any long-term stay. So the child will continue to do those things and the parent will have to continue to punish the child for that because the aversive consequence 
is not natural. It's not a natural consequence of saying, taking a cookie out of the cookie jar or slapping your brother or misbehaving someone. So all of these punishments we've come up with, we will have to continue to do in order to have them have an effect, okay? And that's the problem with positive punishment is that what we have learned is that unless the punishment, unless the behavior equals the punishment, the consequence will be null and the child will produce that behavior in the future. Let's take the negative punishment example into it. So we take away a positive and this happens a lot with adolescents, right? Where we threaten to take away the car keys, the, the PlayStation and all of these things. Why doesn't negative punishment work? Again, because it's not natural because as adults, we set up that consequence which introduces the opportunity for choice. So what's the common mistake that parents make with using negative punishment? They say, for example, with an adolescent, if you stay out beyond 11 p.m., I'm gonna take away the keys to your car, okay? Now think about that. You've implemented choice for that child, which means at 1050, when he's doing awesome at this party with this uh, PlayStation and he has this attractive girl, and I'm using a guy in this example, has an attractive girl that's paying attention to him. Um, all of his friends are cheering him on. Maybe he's had a few libations to drink. At that moment, he's being completely rewarded for being where he's at. And so the idea of choice, the idea, okay, am I going to deal with mom and dad and their threat to take away my PlayStation or am I going to stay right here in this moment where I'm being completely rewarded by my surroundings? You've implemented choice, okay? Now, how would this type of negative punishment actually work in the real world? Well, you don't provide choice. You tell the child be home by 11, okay? And you make sure they're at where they're at. And I promise this is a one trial solution to a child staying out late. You don't provide consequences if the child is not home by 11. You just say, be home by 11, I would really appreciate. You're going to positively reward them for being home on time. But here's what I would do as a parent, knowing this knowledge now, knowing that you shouldn't actually provide that choice in order to decrease that behavior. Is at 1150, you drive over to that friend's house. No, at 1050, you drive over to that friend's house. And at 11 o'clock in your wonderful nightgown, whatever you're wearing, your, your muumu, your PJs and stuff, you knock on the door and whoever answers, you yell, hey, I'm looking at looking for Billy. He was supposed to be home at 11. One trial learning, I guarantee that child will be home at 11 every night when you ask him to. Why? Because you did one, you did not provide choice but you implemented a consequence for the behavior. So you introduced an aversion. So when Billy comes up, say, hey, give me your car keys. You're riding home with mom. It'll be a one trial learning experience for that child and they'll be home by curfew every time. I guarantee this almost to, to, to a guaranteed extent. I won't you know, give any money back for this advice, but that is how the punishment system is supposed to work. Once you implement choice, this system no longer works. Now, with that being, remember what I said about this theory, these theories. These theories are applied at a very simple level. If we talk about it in the brain level, this type of learning is happening at the limbic system. Okay. It's not happening at the higher cortical level where most humans evaluate the situation. 
So should you provide your children choice? Absolutely. Come home at 11, we'll wake up tomorrow and we'll have a great day. If you're not home at 11, then it's, then, then it's gonna ruin the day. That's a choice that has nothing to do with consequence that they will receive for not coming home at 11, okay? Providing choices is important for human beings, but at the moment of human behavior, you have to understand what choice they made, okay? And then you have to adjust your positive, you, you have to adjust your reinforcement and punishment system to meet the decision criteria that you provided that child which if you provided the choice to stay out beyond 11, punishment shouldn't include things like spanking, hitting, taking away keys and those like, because you provided that choice. And at the limbic system, once that occurs, once those reinforcing systems start to occur, the consequences of your, your decisions don't happen until later. You don't consciously become aware of those decisions until later. So choices are important, but they shouldn't be used as a reason to punish or reinforce a child, if that makes sense, okay? All right, so let's look at the, the difference in punishment. Uh, you take a medication to cure a headache, uh, you have the, the, the bad allergy reaction, so you avoid that medication in the future. That's, that, that's a, a positive punishment. You show off to your friends by speeding past a police car, you get a $200 ticket, you stop speeding. I don't know if this one works in real life, but that's theoretically what it's supposed to do. Negative, uh, and again, then we go with negative reinforcement, so this is the opposite. You take a medication to cure a headache, the headache goes away, you take more medication. And that's the difference, right? Okay. And so uh, let's go to then uh, the difference between all of them. Positive reinforcement, you turn in your homework on time, the teacher praises you, which increases the probability that you'll do it in the future. Negative reinforcement, you take some aspirin for a headache, the aspirin your headache goes away, you take aspirin again next time you have a headache because a negative consequence has gone away. Positive punishment, you don't clean up your room when, you, when your parent asks you to, your parent yells at you and for not cleaning up your room, theoretically you stop uh, doubting and you clean your room. Negative punishment, you come home two hours after curfew, you get grounded for two weeks, that should uh, decrease the, the, the staying past curfew. But as I've mentioned, with human beings, and this is the nuance with human beings, once you implement choice, these laws of operant conditioning go out the door, okay? So expect that as a parent, whenever you have some type of rewarding system or some type of punishment system that you have to use, if you expect children to increase their behavior or decrease their behavior, that these, these systems are only uh, work when you have a non-cortical organism, such as a rat or a pigeon and the like. Um, that when it comes to humans, once we implement the idea of choice, the laws of operant conditioning go out the door. Okay. And again, I mean, some of this punishment, corporal punishment used by, this is interesting, that 70 to 90% of parents in the U.S. use some type of corporal punishment, such as spanking, such as isolation, such as uh, 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 really negatively talking to the child. Yet research, current research has shown that those types of punishments actually increase the likelihood that a child will commit aggressive and illegal behaviors in the future. That indeed, the more a child receives spankings and those we increase the probability of criminal behavior in that child. 
when we lower corporal punishment, when we don't give in to things like spanking and yelling and isolation, it decreases the probability that a child will end up in some type of legal issues or committing some type of legal uh, issue in the future, which I know to most American parents doesn't make sense because we assume that, you know, punishment is the way to rehabilitation, but um, that, that's just not how it's working out in scientific research. So it, from a scientific pr purpose, why should parents avoid spanking? Because you actually decrease the probability that your child will end up in the legal system in the future. So that, that's just that natural consequences of those choices for parents. Uh, we do know that there are time and consequences for behaviors that, you know, the more delayed the reinforcement punishment is, the less likely it will have an effect. So a lot of times, you know, parents will say, hey, if you get five stickers in a week, we'll have pizza. Those type of systems don't really work. Um, uh, some parents have had success with them. That's why the myth exists. But the longer dis distance between the punishment and the reinforcement, the less likely you will get that behavior to increase or decrease in the, in the future, okay? All right, okay. So now I want to talk about observational learning, but I'm not sure how much time we, we're out of time. So I am going to hit observational learning first thing on Thursday and social learning on Thursday. They're the same thing. Um, and it's going to bring in some of these things that we've been talking about from these more unconscious types of learning uh, uh, that deal with the limbic system. And what we're going to do with observational learning is lift this up into the cortical areas of the brain, into the thinking areas of the brain, where children and even adults learn the best on a conscious level. But we'll leave that for Thursday. Rachel Violet, uh, I appreciate you being here tonight. We only have like 10 seconds left. So all I'm going to say is have a good evening and we will see you on Thursday. Thank you, it was good information. Good, I'm glad. Thank you, Violet.